record on this computer. <clears throat> okay. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Elitist Anthropology. It's me, your host, Nicholas. Excuse me. I hope that you're having an amazing day and that you're having an amazing autumn so far and that you really enjoyed last week's episode. Today's guest, uh, I'm just going to get right into it. She's someone who is... I can't keep calling all of my guests cool and interesting because I'm sure you guys are getting tired of that. But she is really cool and she is really interesting. But I will also add that she is quite um, beguiling, quite charming, um, quite enigmatic. We met several years ago. We were working, uh, both working at the Guggenheim uh, and then she moved to New York. And this past year, we've gotten to spend a lot more time together, which has really been fun. She's a creative person. She's a marketing uh, guru. And now she can have the title of being a guest on Elitist Anthropology before I got my come up. So, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the pod, Brianna J. Heath. Woo! Clap, 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 Hi. Clap, 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 I just clap. like to first ask, like, is it because you're on the come up that I'm on the podcast? Like, once you're big, I won't be on the pod anymore? No, you you will be. That's but what you're implying. You'll just get to be like... She got it early. Yeah, you could tell everyone like, oh, like, no, like, Elitist Anthro, I've been, <laughs> I've been on that. Like, you're, you're not putting me onto that. I've been on that. Check the archive. Period. Um, but, Brianna, so I told the audience a little bit about you. Can you tell the audience a little bit about you? Uh, sure. Uh, it's often difficult to describe, like, what my formal role is. Mm -hmm. um, I like to define myself as a creative consultant, and that takes on many capacities. Um, my formal background is in art. I studied art history at Northwestern, art history and African-American studies. All throughout college, I did curatorial internships. So at our campus museum, at the MCA in Chicago, and then at the Guggenheim, which is where I met Nick. Um, and then for the sure. first year, period, the first year after graduating, I worked at a marketing and communications firm, um, specifically in the art sector. So a lot of our clients were big museums, but then also luxury brands um and that was cool and everything but then I realized like corporate mm -hmm. was not for me mm -hmm. and I had the crazy and wild idea to just start my own business and mm -hmm. I got my first client to do digital strategy and art direction for a shoe designer um, which was really exciting and mm -hmm. the rest kind of just took off in the last year I only started my business a year ago um it's just grown tremendously and I have a really um solid niche of only working with black women entrepreneurs which is where I like to be because those are the only people that I really want to work with on a day-to-day -day, on a day-to-day -day basis. But then also, mm -hmm. um, my work is in art, fashion, beauty, and now cannabis, which is really exciting. Mm -hmm. um, I do a lot of different work, so art direction, digital marketing, creative consultancy, um, also events, and now getting into product development. So oh, a lot nice. of different things, and my work. Yeah is like every six or so months but I really appreciate that because I know I wouldn't yeah. be able to experience this rapid of growth um if I were in a traditional role and then I guess a little bit about myself like I live in New York now I'm really loving it I was in Chicago mm -hmm. for five years it was cute um but what, I like what was it like in like what was your experience like in Chicago um, well, I was in Evanston. I went to Northwestern and I did spend quite a bit of time downtown because they really sell it to you as a school where like Chicago is your backyard. No, it is not. And they do not give you a CTA card. <laughs> CTA is like the public transit. It's like it's the L. And so mm -hmm. um, but I spent a lot of time downtown because I was always going to like arts events and like a lot of my friends I met through working at like museums downtown. 
And mm-hmm. so I felt like I was already in Chicago before I graduated. And then my senior year, I moved into the city proper, which was nice. And then mm-hmm. my final there, year there, I lived downtown. And it was nice and everything. But like Chicago never felt mm-hmm. like where I was supposed to be. And I was comfortable mm-hmm. with that because I knew once I left, I would never move back. And now I've been yeah. back four times this year for client work. And that's cute. And that's the extent to which I really want to be there for extended periods of time. Mm-hmm. New York, I don't know how to describe it outside of like energetically, this feels like where I'm supposed to be. And I yeah. really do that as far as like, I'm genuinely happy here. And I feel like there's so much opportunity and I'm constantly inspired. And you know me, I'm a hustler baby. And so I need to be yeah. somewhere you're going to get pushed to move. And I feel that here <laughs> because it's a tough city. I'm saying all these great things, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it is difficult, but I appreciate that. Um, and it's somewhere that I think I would be, I will be for a long time. What is your, what part of New York do you live in? What has your experience been like since you, since you moved here and what do you think about it? So I live in Chelsea and mm-hmm. it's fine. It's more so I just got a really great deal when I moved and mm-hmm. I'm just staying here because rent is expensive and I got a great deal. Real. And, Real. and I get to like, I have my own apartment. It's a very quiet area. It's very, very mm-hmm. clean. I spend a lot of time uh, commuting to Brooklyn to see friends, but it's yeah. fine. And for work, one of my clients has an office down on Wall Street. So that's only like 20 minutes from me. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that anywhere I have to go, I can either walk or is like not far of a train ride, especially because like if it's under an hour, I'm going to put on my sneakers and my headphones. Right. And get to step in. Real. Can you tell me, so one thing that was really interesting when I was getting to know you is that you are vegan. And so whenever we would, which I'm a, I'm, I'm not a former vegan, but I, I had, I had my Greenpeace era, but I dibbled and I dabbled back in the raw vegan days. But one thing that was really interesting was when we started to getting to know each other more, I started like we would like be like oh like let's go out to eat and so I would be like oh well let me find a new vegan place and it was very interesting getting to see New York from just the point of view of a different subculture right like I'm not a part of the vegan life so it's not I don't think about where can I go this vegan where's the busting vegan food etc etc but you are and I often think of (laughs) Los Angeles as the like as the vegan capital of America but can you tell me what it's like in New York as a vegan like how do you perceive the vegan food scene there? It's a treat. I I like to joke that I was hungry for five years in Chicago because there's, <laughs> really, there's really not a ton of vegan food versus here. It's like I've been vegan for so long that I don't even really have to think about it. And there's always options and people here tend to be more knowledgeable about what veganism is. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't even like eating at strictly vegan restaurants. Um I do on occasion, like if they're really good, like this place Planta, that's like a chain now. Mm-hmm. Delicious. It's so good. But I eat a lot of like international cuisine that's vegan friendly, but mm-hmm. more or less it's just like I have a better time here because I'm not fighting for my life to find options to eat. Mm. And even like bodegas, like they have stuff and like I just yeah. feel like I'm able to live a more convenient and normal life. Mm. Um, and I'm like approaching 10 years of being a vegan it's been nine years so we're at a point where like this is just what we do and I need it to be as easy as possible oh wow I still okay the next time I'm in New York I have to show you uh Scott Pilgrim versus the world I need your take on that incredible vegan cinema 
Oh, you um, keep mentioning it to me. You know I don't watch stuff like I, I don't. That's what I'm saying. I have to wait until I'm literally in town to force you to do it. I know you're not gonna just <laughs> put that shit on. Um, where are you from originally? So I was born in Monterey, California, but I grew up moving around a ton. So mm -hmm. it's very difficult for me to like tell people where I'm from because I'm not from any one place. I grew up moving every few years. Most recently, my parents have lived in Northern Virginia, right outside of DC for the past like 15 years. Mm -hmm. um, but it's something that I like contend with often, especially as I enter early adulthood, realizing how much people root their identities and where they're from. And that's not something that I really have. Mm. Um, especially like having a place that you've grown up your entire life or so having somewhere that like there's a long lineage of your bloodline of people who have been raised yeah. and had a community there. Um, all of my extended family is from Georgia, but mm. I've never lived there. I go there for holidays and stuff. So I think yeah. that's part of the reason I feel really happy in New York is I think this will be my home. It's something mm. it's a place that every time I visit prior to, to moving and then just having lived here for almost a year, I can see myself having longevity here. And that's really comforting because I've never I've never had that before. Mm hmm. Wow. Wow. And so that's an interest. I have, like, when I moved to New York, I've, I'm from, I'm from the Burbs in Texas, right? And so most people that are, most people that live here have lived here. And it was a very new concept for me when I moved to New York, meeting people that have that same feeling of like, I moved around my whole life. I'm not from anywhere. Like I'm here. I'm I'm here on my vibe twin, but I'm not like I just pulled up a place. Okay. Exactly. Exactly. So a question that I would love to ask is how did you how do you or how did you learn to maintain sort of like friendships or relationships across distance? So like as you moved, as you went to college, now living in New York, how do you approach maintaining relationships that you're very um separate from? Um, that's something I really learned in college, like in, like when I was a child, it's kind of hard when you're moving like every year, every two years to keep up with everyone. And mm -hmm. it was prior to like everyone having like an iPhone, uh, that happened in like middle school. And yeah. by then it's probably not the healthiest coping mechanism, but I knew when I moved to a new place that I probably wouldn't be there for a super long time. So I wasn't as invested in like really getting mm. to the people. It's like, I'm gonna be gone next year. But then high school, I got to stay in one school <laughs> four years. And that yeah. is where I like had my first like long-term friends. Like my best friend Courtney, we've been friends for 10 years, and it's something that like I reflect Shout on. Shout out to Courtney. Shout out to my girl Courtney. She's literally the baddest bitch you'll ever meet. Um, you can cut this part out. But <laughs> <laughs> I I would never cut out a baddie. That's just not say, something I, I would do. <laughs> he does not silence women. That was exactly. a test. And so <laughs> Um, I reflect on often how grateful I am for our friendship because that's something that like to have someone who's known you from childhood to early adulthood and is watching you and growing with you into womanhood is something that I really, really appreciate. And she's a friend that we just know each other like no one else. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say it was college that I really learned how to maintain long distance friendships because all of my friends ended up being international. I studied art history and I guess mm -hmm. that's what everybody wanted to study there were like 11 of us in our major four of those yeah. people on graduation day but like the other five of us we um what was we um were friends throughout college mm -hmm. and like we're really, really close but they were from like all over the world so then I just didn't really connect when we graduated they had to go home mm -hmm. because they didn't have a visa 
Um, yeah. I just have a lot of long distance friends through that. One another one of my close friends I met for the MCA. She's from Mexico City. She hasn't lived in the US in the past like three years. Mm-hmm. Um, so I spent a lot of time on FaceTime, a lot of time texting. I'm a big caller. Mm-hmm. Um, and then just I think there's a certain comfort level that you have with genuine friendships where it's like, okay, we might not talk every day. We might not talk for like three, four months, maybe even six months, but we're still there for each other. And I think that's that shows a level of maturity that when you're younger, a lot of your relationships are because of proximity. And mm-hmm. I reached a point when I was in college where I was like, I have no interest in being friends with people just by association because they're a part of this organization or because they're in yeah. XYZ. Like I was very anti-Greek life because I was looking from the outside in like, y'all don't even like each other. Like you're literally, (laughs) (laughs) y'all don't even like each other. And it's like just out of convenience and necessity. And I built a really rich social life outside of that. Mm -hmm. Um, That really pressured me to think about how I approach my relationships because just because we're in the same environment does not mean we have to be homies. And I might be close to someone that I see once a year in person, but we have a really... Mm -hmm meaningful and supportive relationship that doesn't require constant proximity that is so true I felt like that sort of not moment but I really realized that during COVID I was kind of worried when I graduated Mm -hmm. college that you know people people that were older than me said like yeah like when you graduate college like a lot of people that you were friends with kind of fall off uh, which like made sense at the time, right? People move, work, whatever, whatever. But because COVID happened when I was in the middle of college, I think all of the people that I was going to fall off with because we weren't in the same space anymore fell off. But then mm-hmm. I started to have much more meaningful relationships with a smaller group of people. And so it's like that group of that group of people still like we're still tapped in, we're still locked in. But it, I think it's because we had that experience of, distance um when we were still in life still very like emotionally and situationally very near to each other because we were all still in college just from our parents house in New Jersey yeah and then when you get older you realize that you do start growing with people and you either grow with them and appreciate the ways that they're evolving where you might not be there yet or you're in different places or it just shows Mm -hmm. you that that's just outgrowing someone but it's nice that you're able to solidify those relationships at a time when you do have a lot of similarities as far as where you are yeah and then as is life just seeing how that goes um but yeah I, I do think COVID was a really good example or at least practice run to see like okay what's what's really gonna last out here <laughs> yeah it's a good a good stress test for a lot of different relationships but I want to talk about art for a minute so can you tell me a who are some of your your favorite artists like put our audience on um, and then B, can you talk about the way that studying art history or studying aesthetics in an academic environment has influenced your taste? Some of my favorite artists, just two off the bat, I really mm-hmm. love Becky Packer. She's a really talented and amazing portraitist. Um, mm-hmm. Painting was my first love. I give give me a large scale painting, mm-hmm. and I won't know how to act. So <laughs> Jennifer, <laughs> I also love Daniel McKinney. Um, recently, J- J- Jatavia Gary has really been piquing my interest. She's a video artist um, mm-hmm. and filmmaker. But yeah, those are a few phases. And then studying art history. And you said, how does studying art influence my taste? Yeah. Um, I think, first of all, I think I've always had taste. No, um, but... <laughs> I really love aesthetics and it's something that I, I studied art history, but my focus was visual culture. I also studied art, uh, African-American studies, like mm-hmm. specifically focusing on 
um, critical race studies, racial hegemony, racial hegemony and racial development across mm-hmm. the world. And viewing that through a highly visual lens is something I found to be mm-hmm. really as far as like how the construct of race was largely guided by what people were seeing. And so how are how are mm-hmm. you actually seeing um, or the act of seeing as something that you um, create? Mm-hmm. And I would say it just I had I took a class my senior year that was sculpture and I yeah. was doing really well in it. And I realized that like having studied art history taught me how to make good art, even though I hadn't done it yet. I conceptually mm-hmm. and formally understood the components of like a really affective painting or sculpture, although the execution on my own might not be um, up to par. Not my, not might not, it was not, but <laughs> um, sculpture yeah. was a little bit easier. Um, and it really, I, I don't think we spend enough time focusing on what we're seeing. We live in a visual world. Yeah. Thing. If you are privileged to see as most people are, um, you, I think we kind of throw that sense to the wayside and take it for granted when it really is what mm. dictates our perception of the world, but not just what we're seeing, but like there's a depth to it. And if you interrogate it and think through um, how your point of view is going to be so different from ed- every other person, you can be looking at the same painting, you can be looking at the same person, the same mm. situation and take on a different meaning and understanding of it, which I find to be really interesting, especially because so many people look at art as a singular thing that there has to be an answer to and that you have yeah. to have depth understanding to have any kind of like valid critique or opinion on it. And I completely mm-hmm. review that. Um, but I would say it just taught me, I, I studied art history because I realized that college didn't matter what you studied. It just mm-hmm. mattered how you wanted to learn. And this is something that art history is incredibly interdisciplinary. So I was able to study philosophy, sociology, critical mm-hmm. race studies through art history. Mm-hmm. But then also how um, so much of literal history is rooted mm-hmm. in the visual and art history is what yeah. our records um, and how the act of collecting and exhibiting works through institutions and even private collections is what shapes our understanding of culture and what the future will understand of our culture. Mm-hmm. And so it felt very layered to me. And I guess how that translates to my taste. Um, I just got to spend a lot of time with really, really great art. And mm-hmm. so if you think about it, because what people collect and what we exhibit defines what the future will understand as our history. Yeah. Oftentimes um, what's viewed as the most kind of like titular works of the time yeah often are ones that are executed phenomenally as well and so I spent a long time Mm. learning art and I really appreciated it because my assignments were like go to this museum and write a visual analysis and Mm -hmm. um I think just that exposure was really nice especially because it taught me how to be in different situations with things that were quite unfamiliar but still have a level of comfort and confidence Mm -hmm. in my ability to interrogate and form an opinion on it um, and I think that's really invaluable because I don't think people often think of art history as like a confidence builder. But yeah. there is something to be said about being able to have an opinion and stand on it and defend it mm-hmm. and not have to be rooted in any like, well, this is fact. There is no fact. Can you see that's very interesting. And it makes me want to ask this follow up question of where do you think art? I mean, where where do you think art, specifically fine art, sits along the sort of like cultural the cultural value chain 
in the sense of I've been thinking a lot about am I where am I upstream of culture am I downstream of culture like basically like it, do I do I know of things before they happen before they reach like the mainstream TM or am I finding out about things basically like upstream is knowing before downstream is is finding out because they're in the mainstream and so when it comes to like music or when it comes to literature I feel like I'm very upstream I feel like I know about a lot of artists before they get on I know about genre trends before they happen um the same thing in literature I find out about um you know, books before they enter into the mainstream consciousness. Uh, but at the same time, it can it can move, right? And so then sometimes, like, there'll be, like, as you know, like, I'm not on TikTok, so, like, there'll be videos or there'll be memes or there'll be ideas or discussions that happen that I feel, like, totally disconnected from. And I'm like, oh, this is a thing? People talk about this? Like, this is mm-hmm. crazy. But, <laughs> um, but where do you feel that fine art, especially in the contemporary sense, sits along that kind of cultural value chain? Um, I think a lot of people place it in the pinnacle. And I think a lot of that has to do with accessibility in the sense that like music and literature is so much more accessible as far as, you know, you have to go to, even most recently, I think it was, um, I think it was MoMA, I forget who, they raised their ticket prices to $30. Mm. And so there's one, there's one thing of viewing art online. I did a lot of that in college, but the ability to spend time with and experience works in person is largely determined by the ability to go to these institutions or be Mm -hmm. in possession of them. But anyone can pay $9.99 for a Spotify, not anyone, but like Spotify is relatively cheap and YouTube is free and books from the library or even just downloading them online versus you know, most people, myself included, I aspire to this, but like we won't be able to collect a $50,000 work of art. Right. And that is when, when you're able to spend like extended periods of time with the work is when I find that you understand it more deeply, but who has yeah. the time, privilege, the financial, and then also like the accessibility of being able to be in these spaces frequently. And so mm-hmm. I would say it is easy in the sense that there's a lot of smaller galleries and so you can go see these works and everything. Mm-hmm. But that goes back to my previous point of a lot of people just being intimidated by art. And yeah. so being a black person going into these blue chip galleries and museums where you're watched and treated in a different way. I have never really felt that discomfort, but I've been going to museums since I was like 15. And then I have the institutional privilege of like I am an art historian and I am a curator and I went to one of the best schools in the country. So like, you will respect me, but every person that walks into these spaces should have that same level of respect. It shouldn't be determined by your education or professional capacity. Mm -hmm. Um, So yeah, I would say that people find, and then like visual arts are great and we live in a visual world, but like when I think of culture, especially as it relates to black people, a lot of that is music and that is something that can be, ever present it doesn't matter where you are when you're in new york and you hear someone ride by on their bike with a boom box and they're playing mm-hmm. mega Stallion or whatever it may be that's an experience that we can all share and it's something that is not determined by like oh he has ownership of this song and the only person that can see it it's like music yeah. is something experience all the time yeah um, we're much more comfortable with and it, it, i think it invites when i think of visual art i largely think mm-hmm. of painting because that's my favorite genre but yeah it invites us into community in ways that I think visual art, you need a little bit more work to do. But then also if you think about the maintenance of like records and like the permanence of objects, it's only more recently that 
um, like specifically Black Americans have had the privilege of mm -hmm. maintaining these works because things like songs, I'm getting too deep. But like, no, you're not. No, you're no, not. We that's had what... the slave hymns. And... <laughs> no, that's, yes. Um... So like the way that culture has been transcended through generations through oral histories is something mm -hmm. that the visual there's not much kept of the quilts and other works that enslaved yeah. people, but the music, you still see remnants of it in our music today through soul mm -hmm. and sound. Um, yeah. Does that make sense? No, that that literally, it absolutely makes sense. And I think it's very true. And there's something that Marina Abramovich uh, said where she was talking about like immaterial art forms. And mm -hmm. so immaterial art forms are, the are, well, uh, most is a strong word, but immaterial art forms like dance, like music, they're extremely um, emotionally salient. Um, they're very easily intook, like into your body, right? Because you either, you have to make the work with the with your body as you're doing it. Um, but also too, they are more likely to survive because they don't require preser they don't require preservation. And when we mm -hmm. think about visual art, and I kind of going on what you're saying about like works being accessible. Um, I travel a lot and when I went to Brazil and I saw the Christ Redeemer in mm. person it was like a very like shocking experience for me because I just thought like you know this is truly like religion aside this just statue on this mountain the position of it the, just the composition of this figure this is truly glorious mm -hmm. like this is amazing I can't even believe that I'm looking at this right now um but those types of that type of object doesn't really exist in America. Mm -hmm. And so even the public art culture and the ways that people could participate it could participate with it in public or that they do in other parts of the world, like either like even like the Coliseum, like seven mm -hmm. wonders culture doesn't exist in the modern era. And I think that's in the US, because we don't value public art. We don't value public space. Mm -hmm. and we don't value public health we don't value not when I say we I mean like we don't have the infrastructure as far as like investment in public space public health and yeah. things that people can't enjoy these things and then when they when they are built beauty and meaning is not a big part of the equation mm -hmm. like how beautiful is this building what feeling will it inspire in the people that walk around it will it inspire like you know if you go back into the to you know like the cat like the catholic era or you know ancient rome greece whatever like a thought of the architecture was will this inspire a feeling of gloriousness in the person who has to look at it like looking at the acropolis or something like that um but in public spaces today in the west it's like it doesn't matter. It can just be made of steel and glass and like, that's fine. True. And also just like <laughs> so much of American, like, like of the built world is so commercialized and industrial and it's not necessarily trying to build like a legacy and a heritage, not to say that that's the most important thing, but when yeah. I think of like how there's the aesthetic of the gentrifying building. <laughs> yes. You know what We're I'm talking about? No, I know exactly what I know exactly what you're talking about. I was in Cabo one time and I was in the cruise port and it looked like I was in Vegas. Like it's weird when you start to when you can be in different places in the world and know exactly what a mall is going to look like, exactly what an apartment building is going to look like, exactly what this uh commercial building like how it works, like mm -hmm. the standardization of design mm -hmm. of like of 
functional visual culture yes. it's real I don't know if it's good or it's bad but it's definitely real and it's definitely artless I kind of don't like it and I'm like let's embrace individuality again I want to travel places and not feel like I'm somewhere I've already been as far as like the visual like the built environment mm -hmm. um, but I'm also not an architecture and design person like these are just <laughs> this is just our our thoughts with my treacherous little twin okay. um <laughs> I want to talk about marketing so you work you're, you're in the industry now mm -hmm. um influencers are very important in marketing could you tell me what you think about the influencer economy how it's going and where it's headed um the the thing I'm thinking most about is like mm -hmm. my brand work how to build authenticity for our okay. brand and also the influencers we're working with because we're really everyone is over the age of the overly perfect manicured instagram influencer who you'll never see a single flaw on their physical body or on their feed and uh -huh. we're embracing like okay is there true alignment with like the the meat of the content of this influencer we're no longer just looking for people that are going to recommend us shit but it's like yeah. do i like do I like your personality? Do I trust your judgment? Do you, is there some form of like relatability outside of like, I aspire to have the life that you have? We're yeah. really, especially I feel like Gen Z, um, a lot of us are kind of nihilist and we really don't want to see um, you living in like a skyscraper with your $50,000 Rolex and your birthday. Yeah. And, things. and we're like, actually homegirl who has four roommates and is still in college, she's actually mm -hmm. getting things to give. And they, I find that the smaller influencers also have a lot more creative capacity and authenticity. Mm -hmm. um, so I'd say the biggest push is towards like valuing the influence of the person, like mm -hmm. their um, personality and their opinion as opposed to what they can afford and recommend. Mm -hmm. And especially in the age of TikTok, which I know you're not on, it's mm -hmm. like, we're no we're not doing heavy edits anymore we're not doing mm. we're not making sure that every single thing is perfect we want it to feel like and this is just my understanding that you literally just picked up the camera and now i'm in the room with you yeah and it's not rehearsed you just thought you it's not too rehearsed and you are literally just showing me in the moment what's up and yeah. i appreciate that especially because like i think i think about this so often i hate edited photos because really? I think about like I can appreciate it from like mm -hmm. an artist's perspective as far as like editing something that's editorial. Um yeah. but I mean for the individual, I think it's done a lot of harm to people's conception of self, but then also mm. the pressure and beauty standards that are imbued upon everyone, but especially women. Yeah. And how we see so many images online that because it's the visual, we're taught to believe that what we see is true and that we can believe mm -hmm. it, not yeah. knowing that images are altered and that it's fake, and especially having recently in the past year really gotten into fashion and beauty as well realizing yeah. everybody got work done none of this mm. is real all really? of these photos are heavily edited and so i have really been pushing myself for the past few years but then in general it's like it's okay mm -hmm. to post something where i don't look perfect actually i prefer there to be record like i think about how in history mm -hmm. it's never been a point in time when there's been so much like visual and digital record as we do now Almost yeah. every person you meet will have like 20,000 photos on their phone yeah. uh, of themselves and of things and of random things. And then you think about like the history of image making, it was like mm -hmm. a very intentional thing. And most people right. didn't have the privilege of creating images that would have longevity or creating in, in general. 
And now everybody has a million photos. And what are we going to do with this kind of lexicon of images that are highly edited and fake? And what will that, what, what will future generations make of us having that as mm -hmm. their record as opposed to something that might be a bit more authentic? And so I was, oh my gosh, I was literally thinking about that the other day because I was like, there's more information to be had, but like more of it is wrong and false. <laughs> has, literally. Like, has like, we can think like thinking of this time and, and from a hundred years from now, a historian or an anthropologist could go back and they will have so many more records to pour through, but has the actual number of correct and true representations of the present actually changed? I think actually maybe not. It's more so just like, we're so much more, we can manipulate our realities and the evidence of our existence so much more than before. Mm -hmm. Um, especially if you think about it like online, your Instagram feed is what you're curating and presenting to the world. It's not somebody else documenting and like showing you what you are. It's you deciding from yourself. And it's nice to have mm -hmm. that new level of agency. But at the same time, it really makes me think like, what will they make of us in these highly curated spaces? I think TikTok mm. will help with that a lot because like people are being so real on the app. And yeah. you're really to see like unedited or there are filters but it's like well now you can tell when there's a filter and it's telling you and I think that's really helpful because mm -hmm. we'll look at images myself included so often and you compare yourself to it and it's like but that's literally not real mm. Mm -hmm. yeah wow. um I don't know if I really answered your question well, the follow-up, well, you kind of did, right? Understanding the the state of in influencership, but can you tell me about what do you think is truly the, like, the future? So if now, if before we were in the sort of hyper, hyper, hyper manicured, almost we'll say like, um, like we were in like the artist era, almost like a people that are really designing and creating aesthetics and ideas on the TL, now we're in more of like the curator, the curatorial era where it's people being more authentic that are, you know, showing how they're putting together life in a, in a more meaningful way. What do you think is the next phase? Um, I think we're going to lean more into like embracing individuality. We went through several years of minimalism, sans serif, everything is the same, almost like Glossier where it's like picturesque. Mm -hmm clean and now we're moving into a space where it's like people want true brand and influencer identity so what is that really mm -hmm. core values and also what is your unique visual aesthetic that would not be confused for someone else I think there are a mm -hmm. lot of brands in the past several years it's like their art direction their imagery everything their marketing is quite interchangeable and it was mm -hmm. because that's the kind of like visual lexicon we were all working in and that people yeah. understood best but now it's going to be we're not looking outward. We're going to be very inward and create and generate in a way that like is unrecognizably us mm -hmm. or um, what's it called? Not unrecognizably. I still have not had my matcha this morning. Um, <laughs> what does it mean? When it's like, oh, you can't confuse it for someone else. Um, in distinct, unique, singular. We'll uh, say there's another word I'm thinking, but like it's singularly your brand. Yeah. Um, and your like identity and I think that's what we're really going to move toward wow wow and how do you think like if you're not if you are but let's say proverbially if there is a person who's thinking who's working in a visually creative space and they're thinking like 
I want to put a new visual idea into the lexicon. How does one do that? Is it just about creating, you know, photography or paintings and, you know, trying to show those works and trying to market those works? Or is there some, you know, kind of broader cultural system that they need to be a part of in order to introduce new ideas into the visual world? I think in the digital age, you don't have to go through someone else to share your work. I think it's extremely empowering that you could blow up just from your individual Instagram, TikTok, whatever, blog, website, whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of artists are independent now. They don't have to work through a gallery that is influencing what their practice will look like. Um, it depends on what you value if you really want to be a part of the academy and also mm -hmm. be a part of the canon and be valued in that sense. Or if you're really just like, I'm doing my own thing. I can make my bread on my own. I really don't need this institutional validation. Yeah. Um, and as far as like advice, it depends on the person. Like there's value and merit to studying the history of whatever medium or genre you're working in and building. Mm -hmm. from there's also value in like just creating in a void and not really referencing other visuals and imagery to inform your work, but just creating something that's yeah. unique own. And that's not going to say that it's not guided by things that you've seen in the past. Oftentimes we are creating things that we've literally seen before. Um, mm -hmm. But it's up to it, each to up to <laughs> what am I trying to say? To each his own. To each his own. <laughs> I'm like, it's up to the what? Um, <laughs> so it's, it really depends on like the individual and what you want to value um, mm. and what you find to be most generative. Like I work with a lot of artists in the shows that we're curating, like one of the spaces I work in, um, I curate and we are, our mission is to support black Chicago artists bridging the gap between the established and the emerging. And so our most mm -hmm. recent show is with um, a world renowned designer, um, Norman Teague, who recently showed mm -hmm. at the Biennial and like has won countless awards and has received a global recognition for his design. Mm -hmm. um, previous artist was a 25 year old self-taught designer and mm. in that kind of community. And I find that like there's more, I wouldn't say coaching, but guidance. And um, I have more influence on like the younger artists because they are looking for help to define themselves. And I primarily do that through like questioning and helping them to expand the ways that they're thinking, not me telling them what to think. Yeah. A lot of it is through writing because I find writing to be something that's very, very generative for myself. So mm -hmm. helping them to, in whatever capacity it is that they are able to expand their creative um, work outside of whatever the specific medium is. I find that working mm -hmm. in a different medium to inform whatever work you're, whatever medium you're working in helps a lot. So like yeah. if you are a painting, a painter, Maybe it's through spoken word poetry or reading or writing, or maybe it's through other physical acts like exercise or something that is going to help you inform what your, your painting will be. Mm -hmm. um, but that often comes through a lot of like sustained conversation and dialogue and then um, just getting to understand them and what their needs are as a, an artist. Wow. Wow. I feel that the, the, the curator curator artist relationship is, is very interesting kind of similar to like the writer no it's not the same as the writer and the agent but this idea of there's a person outside of your work who's kind of like that sounding board or that like other circuit that you can kind of run things against um, to help yourself get deeper into the work that you're doing and it can be very very fulfilling but I want to ask you a question about industry which is just I mean for independent 
independent artists, this is a question, but especially for the types of independent brands that you work with. Um, I feel that we are, we definitely lived through the renaissance of independent beauty brands specifically. I feel as though it is coming to an end. You would be a better authority on that than I am. But I want to ask, you know, is there a way for an independent beauty brand to be sustainable in the long term? Or are all brands on the road to acquisition? And when you start working with a company, is that something that you think about from the beginning? Is is there a longevity to this brand in general? Or do you think about it from a project-based basis of, you know, my job is to change their branding, enhance their awareness, whatever, change their image, and I'm just going to do that. And, you know, kind of where they're going in the story of the market is not so important. I'm probably going to need you to repeat parts of this question because I still have not had my caffeine this morning. But to okay. start... I personally, I really enjoy working with brands that have longevity. I, my ideal client is someone who's not trying to sell their company because there's a different mm. level of investment and passion for the business. Um, yeah. That is to say, I do have clients that are actively building companies with the goal to sell. And I think it's something that's very um, just interesting to be a part of and to watch and to see how that kind of business is built differently from something that's like a family run business or something that's going to be mm -hmm. somewhat um, namesake, lifelong career. Yeah. Um, I do think there's space for independent beauty brands to have longevity, but I find that a lot of indie brands, it just depends on like what the goal of the founder is. And that's different. I didn't really understand that before I got into this work as far as like mm. everybody has different ambitions. They might be creating this because they know it's a really profitable and successful business that they'll be able to make a huge profit on by selling at some point. Or it's like, we're not, we know what our maximum profit is going to be. And we're not really trying to do more than that. We're happy with where mm. we are. We're really invested in building our community, building our product, building something that is meant to last for as long as it is meant to, you know? Yeah. Um, and so um, I do think there is space, but generally most of them do get acquired because people do want to pay out, which is yeah. nice. And I'm not going to fault anyone for that because like the goal for most entrepreneurs is, is to be able to sell and to that's the success if you can sell. Right. Um, but what was the other part of your question? Um. Can I remember? Mm. My other part of the question was when you get hired onto a brand uh, or you start working with a company, is that something that you think about when you even accept like a single project? You know, even if it's just, okay, we're going to do one campaign, even if it's just we just want to do digital or PR for a certain amount of time. Do you think about the long term vision of a brand before signing on? I do now. It's not something I thought about a ton before. And also, I don't really do PR anymore. That mm -hmm. was a and we we've released that was it. a phase we're, we're done with that phase. and then i realized like this is stressing me out we're not doing this <laughs> um but now i'm thinking it's like i only work with people that i would want to work with long term i'll do mm. short -term projects but if like i'm going to come on to your brand in a highly mm -hmm. full capacity through digital strategy or art direction or through events yeah. and partnerships it's something that I want to be able to like see myself doing for an extended period of time, whether that's a few years or like hopefully being a part of your, your business in perpetuity. Um, mm -hmm. And so now I think about that, especially like, what is my ideal client? What does our relationship look like? What is their, how are they building the culture of their company and how yeah. do I exist in it? And then that also not to internalize me to their business understanding that I'm a consultant and that like I, have a lot of work outside of the work I'm doing with you and that's to your benefit I've had clients that have tried to internalize me and make it seem like I'm just a part of their business but I'm like I do when I tell people all the things that I that I do mm -hmm. it, I forget all the things that I do and so like <laughs> 
very important for me to have that like agency and autonomy outside of like my relationship with them and what I'm doing for their business. Yeah. Um, I would say now though, I am really looking for someone who is not in a rush. And I mm. think that's something that I'm trying to embrace for myself as well, because if you're moving in a yeah. place to build and sell your business, I really have no interest in it. Mm. Um, I'm, I'm really interested in things that have purpose and vision. And I don't think, I want to be a part of any purpose or vision that is also um, guided by a really intense desire to make a profit. Yeah. Very, very fascinating. And on the, on the note of that, I want to talk about your creativity. So I really love the shoots that I've seen you put together. I'm always very impressed. I'm like, wow, that looks nice. That looks nice. (laughs) But can you tell me about uh, specifically working in the marketing context can you tell me about how you approach putting together like a package, whether you're putting together a campaign or you're putting together a, put- a photo shoot, like creatively, where does the inspiration come from? And then also, can you tell me about what are some of your muses right now or what, who, like the things that are, are really delighting and fascinating you in a creative way? Um. So when you talk about like a campaign, do you mean like a product launch campaign or something? Mm-hmm. Um, Because we have a lot of different campaigns, but that's kind of the most frequent one we're working with. Mm -hmm. Um, First, thinking about like what the product is and why we're trying. I I just said not trying to make like a huge profit, but like, yes, making a profit, but there's one. Mm -hmm. What is the product and like, what is it about it that is going to make it sell? And what do we want people to understand about it? Tying Mm -hmm. that to our core values as a business. Mm-hmm. And so making sure that there's alignment as far as like all of the messaging in every new campaign that we have, there's some level of continuity. Mm. Um, and then really thinking through like, how can we present this visually in a way that highlights um, the physical aspects of the product? Because I work with like, primarily I do art direction for a shoe designer, but then I also do mm-hmm. it for like beauty as well. And mm-hmm. people with their eyes before they even try a product. So like, how can we entice them to understand this product just by looking at it? and also understand our brand and why it is something that they'd want to have and to own and why it would have value for them. Mm. And so once you have that part, it gets to the fun part of like, this is where like studying art history has really helped me as far as like art direction is something that I want to be a larger part of my work. And it's kind Mm -hmm. of like 30% of it now, but I'd really love to do it where like the bulk of my work is art direction. Mm -hmm. Um, but thinking through like different visual references and how we're going to create something new that is either recognizable as something that is not completely foreign, or are we really trying mm-hmm. to push them and show them something that they have to like have pause with because they've never seen something like this before. Yeah. Um, it really depends on like what the product is. Like, is this something that is completely new? Like we just dropped a new platform that I'm really excited about. It was earlier this year mm-hmm. and it was a previous iteration of a muse favorite design uh, all mm-hmm. the girls that wear kendall miles um are called muses because they inspired okay. the shoes. but it was like a really different take on the shoe so it felt completely different and we really wanted the visuals to to reflect that or yeah. is it something that's like we do a lot of restocks where we'll bring back something in a new color but it's the same design mm-hmm. and so how are we going to entice people to want this new these new flavors of whatever it is that we're presenting mm-hmm. um, a lot of time like I'm actually in that period now because we have a, quite a few photo shoots coming up for the fall mm-hmm. and so last month was fashion month and armory week so it was like several weeks of me just like running around, going to fashion events, going to art events, all the things. I was extremely tired this past week. I've just been resting. And mm-hmm. today is the fall equinox. 
Yes. It's really just been like resting and allowing my body to be at, at a, like a moment of stillness so that my mm -hmm. creativity can really ignite. Yeah. And I'm really enjoying that because if I don't take care of myself first, I won't really be able to have like the vision that I need to, to execute this. Yeah. Um, so I spend quite a bit of time like referencing artworks, whether that's through old files that I have on my computer or doing research. Um, mm -hmm. A lot of it's through like Tumblr and Instagram, looking for visual references, building mm -hmm. upon that. Um, and just a lot of mood and vision boarding until we get to a point where we have a much more like defined concept. And then it gets into all of the like hiring the talent, thinking through log the logistics mm -hmm. of how we're going to make these images. Cause it's great to see an image that you love, but it's like, okay, how are you going to execute this? Yeah. So yeah, it starts off um, understanding like our core marketing values as far as like what we're trying to present for our brand and yeah. like what the product is and then getting mm -hmm. into creative because that is the most visible, the, the most visible part of the work. Like they're mm -hmm. not going to see all of the documents and outlines and strategy. What matters at the end of the day is like, did this image make you want to go buy this shoe? Yes. Wow. I think about that a lot because I've been, I've been, you know, I'm a Tumblr. I'm in my, I love, I love Tumblr. I love a good mood board. And I think now, like the reason why I started doing that is because I was like, I really want to understand image. Mm -hmm. So like, I need to look at more. So I started, I started my Tumblr, I started mood boarding. And so now I feel like I'm just now finally understanding like, okay, when you frame something, when you actually aim your camera at something and you're trying to capture it, what are the way that the, what is the way that the objects need to be organized inside of the image in order to actually um, intrigue the viewer? Uh, but then there's so much more beyond that when it's like, if you're just in an artistic context, you're just thinking about, you know, is it beautiful? Is it meaningful? Is it um, interesting? But when you're working in a marketing context, you still have to ask, is it beautiful? Is it meaningful? Is it interesting? But then you have to add the common, like, is it a call to action, even the image itself mm -hmm. of trying mm -hmm. to call the the viewer to log onto the website, follow on social media, click purchase, et cetera, et cetera. And that's such a different, such a different pathway. Yeah. And it's like, I still see it as art, even though like the end goal is sales, but at the same mm -hmm. time, um, I like art direction because it's highly visible. It's something that mm. like a lot of people, like when you think of a brand, you're going to think of their last campaign. Mm -hmm. And I like that I get to be a part of that, um, especially with this brand that's like rapidly growing. Mm -hmm. And kind of like when you, when people are studying fashion history, I it brings me comfort and, and excitement to think that I'll be a part of that for many brands. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm just starting out in my career. So also to see like, this is my art direction now. I'm probably going to be hella embarrassed in a few years when I look back at my old photo shoots and whatnot. Uh -huh. <laughs> but also, we're we're not rocking with a huge budget yet, and so like this is mm -hmm. like this is lightweight, and I can't yeah. wait until the big bucks to spend on like really, um, like impressive talent and like studio space and all the things that make it so that you can really make those like yeah exciting images. Do you have any brands or campaigns that you that you haven't worked on that are out right now that you think are really cool? Mm. this is just interesting um mm -hmm. I think it's called like not cool girl it's like something girl it's this fashion brand that um she has like all of these reenactments of like women like going to court and like making scenes for her campaign and I just thought it was really mm -hmm. interesting because it's like 
it draws you in because you're trying to figure out like what's going on and watching them and like the scene yeah. but it's, like, the clothes are still the highlight because it's like wow she's slaying like <laughs> they're arresting her but it's giving ten. so like okay <laughs> um, i really like that i really love tori birch mm. like the way she's been transforming this brand as far as like the design but also like it's like mid-range like accessible luxury but it's giving high end yeah um, it feels very like experimental but in a way that's not intimidating where like oftentimes when we see more avant-garde images we assume like mm-hmm. that's not the fashion that i'll be buying right um, but i really like the direction that she's moving um who else hmm. always love pattern i think tracy has kind of hit it on the nail as far as like mm-hmm. creating her own identity into a brand because tracy is what's selling it yeah um but I love the design and just the really relatable and accessible way of presenting new products and innovation mm-hmm. for their for their brand. Wow. Wow. I would have to agree. That's one of the, one of the, I feel ce- celebrity associated products. Again, another thing that seems like it's sort of like seen its heyday. Um, mm-hmm. But one of the few like latecomers that seems like it will really have some staying power. And was she late or was she just perfecting her craft because she knew what she was about to do to all of us? And she said, y'all can can literally wait because y'all ain't never seen nothing like this before. She had a vision. She had a plan. A plan was in motion. Mm -hmm. But I feel like the idea of the celebrity inspired or the celebrity cosmetic product was passe by the time Pattern came out. But Mm -hmm. hers doesn't feel associated with like the shilling mm-hmm. of other of, of <laughs> I mean like you know it doesn't it doesn't have that same feeling like oh this is just another like another product in the marketplace it feels very singular mm-hmm. um, but now I want to talk about I want to talk about some favorites can you tell me about what music that you're really into in general or currently currently I don't know why I've been listening to a lot of afro beats um I really love Tyla. Make me sad. Mm. <laughs> Make me hot. <laughs> Real. Um, I've been listening to a lot of Burner Boy. Um, I feel like the things that I'm drawn to are where I'm meant to be headed, and I really want to go to the continent um, mm. in some capacity, whether that's, like, just going to one country or doing, like, a little tour. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen because it's a little far, it's a little expensive. Yeah. But lots of Afro beats um, across the diaspora. I love and will always love. SZA, um, mm. have been listening to a lot of Thames recently, and um, her name is like Annie. She's like British. Mm-hmm. Um, really love her music too. I'm really into like Black girl indie. Um, no matter where they're from, always love FK Twigs. Um, mm, yes, Solange is a must, but she hasn't given us anything new in like four years now. Yeah, she's been laying lower than ever. She out here making cla- like making glasses and, and doing ballet and stuff. Literally, which I'm happy about, but I'm like, give me an album, please. Yeah. At least in the next like two years. Um, so yeah, those are some of the faves. Um, I also listen to a lot of podcasts. Um, oh, really? What's your podcast taste like? <laughs> that felt so pointed. Um, but <laughs> no, like, I love to know because podcasting people can there's such a wide uh, we've discussed this you know there's such a wide range of what people can be listening to on pods my friend just showed me a pod the other day that had like a million subscribers i'd never heard of it oh my so God. 
Yeah, what do you what are you into? My weekly roundup. I love and will always love black girls texting. I actually get mm-hmm. to work with it now for a number of clients. Um, the podcast is as it sounds. It's a podcast that feels like your group chat, like black girls texting, and they're a group of friends, mm-hmm. like millennials, and they're really cool. I've been listening to them since I was like in college. Mm-hmm. So now to like get to work with them in a professional capacity, as far as like having my clients on their show and everything, I'm like wow. Mm-hmm. Um, also just manifesting I'm going to speak it into existence before this podcast blows up that I'm going to be on mm-hmm. black girls texting okay um, and I'm ready for it <laughs> and, but yes. I feel like that's, that's a goal for next year because we're building um, and we have some exciting things coming up for this year that will make it so that that's possible for next year okay I love Naked Beauty which is a podcast by Brooke DeVard she has a really cool like uh, Instagram and TikTok presence where and blog where she talks mm-hmm. about uh, beauty culture, beauty business, beauty trends. Uh, she interviews mm. a lot of founders. Um, have been listening to that for ages. Love the read. Doesn't really need an explanation. Um, yeah. Also really into Bluntly Black Girls, which is a podcast about like cannabis enthusiasts. Um, and she okay. just likes and has a fun time with people. Um, I always listen to Astrology of the Week Ahead with Chani Nicholas just because I love hearing my horoscope. <laughs> okay, real. Um I also love um, more so for like hearing news and current events. And I don't always listen to it, but higher learning with Van Lathan and Rachel Lindsay. I just find mm-hmm. that there's a lot of things that are not in my immediate sphere of relevance that I'll get to hear about through this podcast. Yeah. And then if I'm doing research or something, like if I am about to interview someone or meet someone, I will just mm-hmm. go search up whatever podcast they've been on. Yeah. So that. I can like hear from their point of view about themselves because I find that to be really helpful. And mm-hmm. honestly, I think more people need to do it. I don't know if it's like a super popular thing, but like before you interview or meet anyone, especially if it's like in a professional capacity, see if you can find somewhere somewhere where they're talking and like hear mm-hmm. them so you can get a sense of their personality and what it'll be like. I find that's really helpful, um, especially because like if I'm leading like a panel or something and I mm-hmm. haven't spent time with the artist or whoever it may be. Yeah the podcast I'll get to hear more especially because like I do a lot of reading but when you're walking about and you need to like be a little more productive I find it to be helpful yes I would absolutely agree and then can you tell me we talked a little bit about reading but can you tell me about some of your favorite books some of your favorite writers I love Audre Lorde and Nikki Giovanni those are probably my top two favorites um my mm-hmm. favorite book is Your Silence Will Not Protect You um mm. a collection of essays and poems um about like her experience as a black woman across generations and different geographic locations um and I found it when I was like I studied abroad and it was really difficult because I experienced a lot of like um like racism and predation from men and it made Mm -hmm. me feel isolated because I had never experienced that before it's like you get used to the American flavor of racism and misogyny and then you go somewhere else and you're like oh my god it's hitting different (laughs) my safety mechanisms they're malfunctioning and so um, I really love that. Um, currently, I'm reading it's over here, "In Search of a Beautiful Freedom," which is like a collection mm. of essays. I'm a big essays girl. Like, I love a novel, yeah. cute little moment, um, and like a fun read. Like my most recent kind of fun read, which is kind of cringe. It's called Black Buck, but it's about this guy who like <laughs> becomes a serial entrepreneur. He they call him Black Buck because his job is racist, and he just like blows up in a year and becomes a venture capitalist serial entrepreneur. And okay. I read that moved to new york and i was like manifesting um but (laughs) i much prefer like collections of essays and anthologies yeah yeah like a non non non-fiction type of girl Mm -hmm. wow wow well 
Brianna, it has been so nice talking to you. I feel like every time I talk to you, I get to learn something new and have a really interesting Kodak. Please relax, please. He's like trying to break outside. I get to have just. <laughs> I get to think about really interesting things for a while. Um, and so I'm going to ask you the final question so you could get your day started. I know you have a big day of paper chasing ahead of you. We're recording yeah, at like you had me right on the my crack Zoom. of dawn. I had you. We going to be on Zoom. One thing about us, we going to be on our Zoom. But you didn't really send the calendar invite like you needed to. So when I went to sleep last night and I saw nothing on my calendar until noon, I was like, this is not real. But then also like I really was going to cancel on you and you would not let me. No, because the season two, we about to enter into post-production. I like literally, I'm like, I have to, this is my going to be my last interview of the season. And then I'm going to do three essay episodes. And it was like, I was researching all last week and everything. And so I was like, I got to get season two up and I got to get season two out because for season three, that's going to be press pass season. And this needs to, a plan is in motion and the fall equinox is when it needs to get started. Okay. But you know, that's why I fuck with you because you're tapped in. You got on that Zoom. I did. I Others would on. have folded. Because <laughs> I, I pushed it back so many times. I was like, I have to do it. And I'm just tired. There's no excuse. It's raining. So I'm glad we did it. I had a great time. I I hope I don't sound too crazy. Uh, no, you sound amazing. But I got to ask you the final question. This is the final question. Ask all the guests. Where do you want to be in five years? <laughs> On a yacht and a thong in Dubai. Um, Real. <laughs> I I really hope that I think something I'm really focusing on in life is um, prioritizing the journal journey instead of the destination. And so mm. it changes so frequently that I'm just embracing the discomfort because I don't know exactly where I'm headed. I have ideas in my head, but mm-hmm. very fortunate that I'm in like a really transformative and generative period of my life where things are coming to fruition so much faster than I could have ever imagined. And mm-hmm. so it's forcing me to dream bigger than I had before because my my horizons have been expanded and I truly feel like I can kind of do anything. Yeah. Um, but I would like to be at a place where um, I've built up my own personal brand and I, I feel myself doing that now. I'm a consultant for Black women entrepreneurs in art, fashion, and beauty, but that's expanding now. I'm in cannabis mm-hmm. too. And so I want to be at a point where people are starting to come to me as like an expert in this field mm-hmm. of working specifically with black women entrepreneurs. And mm-hmm. I want to build on that because it's something that like, I want to go to mm-hmm. business school eventually. And I'm treating these first yes. few years of entrepreneurship as like my prerequisite classes, because I'm learning so much about businesses specifically with black women, which I think will be a really beneficial, but also niche area of expertise that most other MBA candidates won't have. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also for myself, that's the work I am most fulfilled and driven by. Mm-hmm. So in five years doing much higher level work, I want to get into investing and helping people to build their brands beyond like specific verticals, but like the overall trajectory and vision of where they see themselves heading right now. For yeah. a lot of my clients, I'll do creative strategy and I'll help them on a larger scale. But at the same time, I'm much more junior. I'm only 24. I just turned 24. So I'm thinking mm-hmm. about like once I have period, um, you know, quarter life crisis, but once mm-hmm. I have more experience under my belt, and also I find that because I'm young, people don't take me seriously until they see the proof of my work. Mm-hmm. I want to get to the point where I don't have to prove myself to be mm. and to be valued. Um, yeah. So that's my priority, not necessarily like, I want to have this role. I want to do X, Y, Z. It's like, it changes so often that I'm just letting life take me where it needs to. And I trust that what I'm doing now will guide me where I'm supposed to be. 
Wow. And with that, we're going to wrap the pod up, folks. Thank you so much for listening. As I said, I hope you're having an amazing autumn and we'll talk more next week. Ciao, ciao. Thanks for having me. Yes. Okay. I'm going to stop the recording now.